This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Longtime Palolo resident Lee Waidu will celebrate his grandchild's first birthday this week. His grandson lives in London, where earlier this year they discovered the polio virus in wastewater. Health officials in Great Britain are urgently rolling out the vaccines for children between one and five, as the disease has no cure. Lee Waidu knows too well how the disease can rob you of the use of your limbs. He reflects on his life with polio and uncertainty with this resurgence of cases. He remembers how President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who contracted polio as an adult, was left partially paralyzed and how he didn't want to be photographed in a wheelchair. Lee Waidu said he too fought hard not to be wheelchair bound. Franklin Delano Roosevelt personified polio and its unpredictability. As a young man, he was the picture of health, born to great privilege in New York's upper crust. In 1920, he was a shining star of the Democratic Party and a vice presidential candidate. One year later, FDR came down with polio at the relatively advanced age of 39. It's thought he contracted the virus while swimming with a troop of Boy Scouts on a summer vacation. He would forever be paralyzed from the waist down. You know, Lee Waidu was born a healthy child, but contracted polio at nine months old here in Hawaii. He's the only one of six siblings to be afflicted. It was before the vaccine was developed. His life has been not about the loss of his limbs, but the use of what he has. His braces and arm crutches got him around throughout his professional life as an attorney and through um, public service. But a bout of something called post-polio robbed him of his upper body strength, which today has him in a motorized scooter. He is, though, a bit fearful of the return of polio. It's a worry, and we need to eradicate polio forever. It's a motor nerve vengeance. It kills the motor nerves and atrophy occurs with the muscles. And it can happen uh, from the bulbar upper body situation down through the legs. And it's largely been through the legs for most people, originally called infantile paralysis. We all know it by the great effort of Franklin Delano Roosevelt who had it as a adult, and yet he ran for president and won with two heavy leg braces from a wheelchair that people never saw. My own story is I was born a healthy baby, uh, nine pounds, started to walk at nine months of age, and began to talk. Then it came down with a high fever, and they say I didn't move from my neck down. Um, my mother, under, whole family, understandably besides themselves, uh, but they got me lots of masseuses, people to massage me. Uh, the ones I remember is Mrs. Burgau. Um, and that apparently kept the muscles alive uh, so that the motor nerves could begin to either come back or replicate uh, tendrils that brought back some connection to the muscles. So I grew up with a strong upper body and weak legs, uh, two braces and arm crutches. Well, Lee, I, I know you recently shared with me that you use a, a wheelchair now, but for as long as I've known you, you know, you use those braces to get around when you were at the Honolulu City Council. You know, you were out there in the community just doing the work. Yeah, thank goodness. Polio taught me a lot of lessons. It was a gift in many ways. Otherwise, I'd be like my brothers and sisters, normal. <laughs> but I think polio, as everyone with some affliction recognizes, They've got to find another way. If they're going to be alive, then adapt and don't become extinct. And for me, it was finding different ways to do things. And especially through the love I received throughout my entire life, parents, brothers, sisters, school, friends, etc. 
I wanted to give back. So that's been my main motivation without recognizing it, but subconsciously, how can I serve? How can I be of value to other people? Because I recognize people gave me value with their love and support and consoling comfort. Well, what are you thinking when you see the headlines today? Because, you know, we're seeing it in the wastewater uh, in New York City. They were saying that it may have been there since the earlier part of this year, only just detected this summer. You have a young grandchild, you know, so, so what are your fears at this stage? Everybody, be attentive and make sure you get your booster polio shots or your polio shots as a young child. They say get it at two, four months old for my grandson, but actually he's in London. And uh, from one year to uh, eight years old, get their last shot. Adults should get it if they're going into the areas of wild polio, which is Afghanistan, Pakistan. I, I'll look around to see if I should get it also because Polio has a number of mutations, I imagine. So I, even I want to be prevented from yet a further polio. Well, I just learned of something recently, post-polio. What can you share with our listeners about that? Post-polio has a syndrome of weakened muscles, as I have. I thought I was just lower body polio affected on my legs. But it turns out from 2004 onward, uh, I couldn't stand without, even with my braces, but I couldn't stand without pain, enormous pain. So I couldn't walk and my shoulders wouldn't bear my weight because my shoulders had pain. And what happens is as we age 15, 20, and for me, for me 55 years later, the weakness takes over and nobody knew what it was when it started even I, until the doctor demanded that I get off my crutches and into a wheelchair, which is not my self-image. But after five years, he prevailed. I love it now in a power wheelchair. (laughs) I guess it gives you, yeah, a different kind of mobility. Yeah, and anybody with an affliction has to adapt and evolve from that adaptation. This is the best time in the history of the world to have a disability. We can live a very full life, and I am striving to do with hand controls on my car. I've been driving since I was 14 and a half, no accident, but my right leg was too weak to start feeling confident about switching to the brake till I forced myself to get hand controls, and life is fabulous again. (laughs) I'm independent fully. Well, now, has your grandchild been vaccinated for polio? He will be. Mm-hmm. My daughter has been reading about it in the London sewers. That's where they they live. And yes, she's very cognizant of doing that. Gosh, anything else that you want to share with our listeners just about, you know, your experience and how, you know how you lost your ability to use your legs? Life is a balance. And for every bad there's a good, and the good is a, an awareness of never Never lose sight of the goodness of things, no matter how bad it is. And keep up. Be persistent. Do what you can do and forget what you can't do and go surfing, which it was for me. Surfing changed my entire attitude of life. Wipe out, get back on the board and go again. Love nature. So I say balance. Strive, patience, kindness, love each other. Aloha ke kahi ke kahi. I guess as, as we learn more about, you know, where it's spreading and how to safeguard ourselves, you know, I, I know the rates in Hawaii, they said, are, are, are pretty low. Vigilance is necessary so that it doesn't spread like wildfire here if nobody gets vaccinated. So I encourage everyone to be attentive and get your polio vaccine, especially the babies, but adults too. If mm-hmm. you're traveling to the, the wild virus areas, 
because we can extinguish it. The Rotary Club International has done a fabulous job of distributing uh, polio vaccines around the world, though in the wild areas of polio, some volunteers have been killed, so it's not a light matter. But we have to eliminate polio forever from everyone in the world. And then where did you get it? Did you get it here, or were you, yeah, was your family abroad, or what? I got it here in Honolulu. I'm one of six children. I'm the only one that got it. I'm a Kama'aina, or a fifth generation, originally from China, but naturalized as citizens of the kingdom of Hawaii early on. And healthy, mm -hmm. uh, life was good, and thankfully, my parents let me grow up normally. Then you were nine months? That's correct. The polio pandemic of the early 50s kind of shocked them. So right. I'd be one of the oldest surviving polio old generation victims. The March of Dimes calls it survivors. Survivors, okay. But I never heard of it until I became a member of the National Board of March of Dimes. Through John Henry Felix. Polio is just one of the many afflictions that we all have in one way or another. But yeah. we all hang on to this old local saying of aloha kekahi kekahi, love one another uniquely, individually, mm. without stereotypes. Yeah, acceptance. bad legs mm -hmm. that I couldn't <laughs> run. But look for the character of the person and the qualities that make them unique. And that, I think, is the heart of Aloha. We've been hearing from Lee Waidu, a Honolulu attorney trained at Harvard who served as Honolulu City Councilman for 12 years. He was reflecting on his life with polio as the crippling disease has now resurfaced in the U.S. after being eradicated some 30 years ago. Uh, the Palolo resident uh, served on the National Board of March of Dimes, and he credits another former uh, Honolulu City Councilman, John Henry Felix, for his encouragement growing up in the face of adversity. We plan to hear from uh, Felix tomorrow about his work with the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, whose founder, uh, Jonas Salk, created the polio vaccine. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we thought about a famous artist, her 1939 visit to Hawaii, and her friendship with a little girl. The artist had been described in Time Magazine at that time as the least commercial artist in the U.S., so some people in her avant-garde circle were puzzled when she took on a commercial assignment. Charles Coiner, art director for Dole's uh, advertising agency, came up with the idea of commissioning the artist to make two paintings of his signature product, the pineapple. She took the job, but proceeded to paint everything she saw except the plant her employers wanted her to paint. Instead, this artist painted local landscapes after she was shown around Maui by a 12-year-old girl who opened her eyes to the beauty of the island's flowers, tide pools, waterfalls, mountains, and wildlife. As that little girl remembered later in life, you never saw a single tourist in the old days, even at the most beautiful spots. We were the only ones there. The result was some of the artist's most celebrated work. And this morning, we are looking for her name. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. 
nareedhawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, we kick off a week-long series of some of our favorite music interviews from the archive with two rock guitarists, the Rolling Stones' Keith Richards, who co-founded the band and wrote songs with Mick Jagger, and with Brian May, a founding member of Queen and its lead guitarist. He wrote one of the band's most famous songs, We Will Rock You. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. You know, this month, the online news service Task and Purpose highlighted the military's conservation efforts to protect our drinking water, as well as the ongoing fears Hawaii's military families have about drinking fuel-contaminated water. It also showcased a story from the Star Advertiser about the Navy divers who headed right into the pollution to help clear it from our water distribution system. Reporter Haley Britsky is in town this week. She's covered Red Hill for task and purpose, as well as other issues impacting the military and veterans. Here's part of our conversation with Britsky, who we first talked to earlier this year. You know, these divers, they're part of Pearl Harbor's Mobile Diving and Salvage Unit 1, and they sort of became these first responders to the fuel leak in November at the Red Hill fuel storage facility. And it was I thought it was an interesting thing, given that, you know, how close to home this job was for these divers, which they said was really unique to this uh, situation. You know, typically they're not going into water to, to look for something, look for a problem that is directly impacting their family's health. And these divers were talking about, you know, I think one of them, their their wife got sick and their their children were getting ill from this water and from the uh, exposure to this contamination. And at the same time, these divers were having to go into that water uh, to look for the origin of the problem, to figure out how to fix it. And so I think it really just underscores how severe this situation was and the far-reaching impact it had on service members and their families at Pearl Harbor Hickam. Yeah, and the description of, you know, what it's like, uh, what popped out at me was the foam I guess, on the water, and you're wondering, well, what is that exactly? And, uh, you know, it's hazardous duty. Right. I mean, they they detailed, yeah, like you said, foam-like substances on top of the water that they were going into. The way that the fumes from this fuel just became really overwhelming. And, you know, they're, uh, you know, it irritated their eyes, were giving them headaches. You know, even though they had this protective gear on, it was still sort of seeping through that. Uh, And so I think it just is one of those things that's added to this list of concerns when we hear from families and and citizens um, on Hawaii who are saying, you know, this is uh, going to have lasting health impacts. They're really concerned about what that's going to look like. And the Navy so far has not really been able to give an answer for what they're going to do to help address those concerns. And there are, you know, multiple lawsuits that are pending in, in working their way through that whole process. But uh, you, you folks also feature another story about conservation efforts uh, that the military has launched. Talk about that. So just earlier this month, uh, the Department of the Navy and State of Hawaii sort of announced that $14.9 million are going to be going towards conservation efforts in Hawaii. So from from the Navy, from a DOD program, which, you know, classic Pentagon has a very lengthy name, but essentially the millions of dollars are going to be going to things like water safety, water preservation, preserving land and and, uh, restoring forests near the Pearl Harbor Aquifer. Um, And so it's really, I think, an olive branch for the Navy to say, you know, start trying to mend those relationships that were so damaged with not just the Red Hill fuel spill, but with fuel spills prior to that. The community is very, very untrusting of the Navy. Uh, and, you know, for good reason, I think many people could argue that, you know, that the Navy really uh, has not done a good job of assuring that they understand concerns of the citizens in the area and that they're going to work to address them. And so I think these millions of dollars that they've announced are going to be going towards, you know, water resilience and, and water safety for the surrounding region of Oahu, as well as across the rest of Hawaii. I mean, it's really just an effort for them, I think, to say, we're hearing you. Uh, We are going to work on this, and we are going to work with you on protecting uh, this land and the water around it. Yeah, the watershed is uh, really a key part of our whole system here. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of that money is going to go toward that effort. But, you know, there is also just the, you know, the the situation that we're experiencing with the drought conditions and uh, the fact that the military is still flushing, pumping out water and diverting it into Pearl Harbor. There have been calls for that for some of that water, if it is safe to use it on irrigation, you know, just so it's just not all going to waste. Right. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of steps and a lot of expectations of the Navy that they've yet to really 
you know, address and talk about. I mean, we know the defueling plan just last month, I think it was, the, the Department of Health saying, you know, this fueling plan that they provided lacked substance and details and dates. And so there's still a lot of things that officials are waiting to hear from the Navy. Navy said they're going to be releasing, you know, a more in-depth plan soon that what they'd released earlier was just a framework. But I think they have to recognize that they're, they're starting from a place of extreme mistrust when it comes to how officials and citizens uh, really view how the Navy is going to work on this problem. And so they're going to have to put in some extra work to really get that, make that clear that they're hearing those concerns, they're working to, to address them, and that they're willing to work with officials, state officials, to move forward on this in a way that benefits everyone. Well, I know we've done stories here with some of the recent contracts that have been awarded to companies, to vendors, to try and help with the conservation effort. But I think a lot of people don't realize that these communities they don't really have meters on them. And so it's really hard to get maybe families to conserve when they don't really have a good sense of how much they're using. Right. There are several things that that will have to be looked at and sort of reevaluated as this moves forward. Um, It's definitely something we're going to be uh, watching to just sort of see the impact, if any, this is going to have, you know, how how much the Department of the Navy is really planning on sticking with this moving forward and sort of what their plan is to ensure something like this doesn't happen again. Yeah, so we'll be um, waiting to see about the uh, Navy's response uh, to the state's decision that what they presented initially was just not acceptable and they need they need to know more. Right. I mean, we heard from families, you know, who have since even left Hawaii or, or those who are still there who, you know, have not been able to move past uh, the, the blundering that the Navy did at the very beginning of this with the results that they provided, the statements that they were making at the beginning saying, you know, the water was safe and things like that. So, you know, like I said earlier, I think it's just going to have to be some real intentional effort and focus on rebuilding those bridges and mending that trust uh, that just was completely lost uh, all these months ago during the very beginning of this Red Hill fuel spill. All right. Well, uh, we appreciate uh, you keeping an eye uh, also on these uh, issues. Uh, They're very important to uh, military families um, across the state and across the country. But uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Haley Britsky of Task and Purpose, a new service created by former military veterans with a focus on issues important to the military and their dependents. Britsky is in town this week. Lucilla Beat has a story about exotic animals and their place in the islands. Uh, uh, Reporter uh, Marcel Honoré joins us this morning. Hi, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Hey, I did not know we had little penguins here in the islands. Yeah, you know, it's not something you typically associate with Hawaii, to say the least. Um, I, I guess beyond the Honolulu Zoo, right? Uh, but this is uh, apparently there is a, a colony of penguins at the excuse me the Hyatt Regency Resort over on Maui, uh, just north of Lahaina in the uh, in that area up there. And uh, for the past thirty six years or so, they have maintained a colony of African black footed penguins. I, I believe they've at other points had uh, at least one other type of penguin there as well. But right now that colony, which is there for commercial and entertainment purposes and designed to try and kind of attract uh, more visitors and guests to that hotel. Uh, There's an enclosure in the the, the main atrium area, and they are looking to import four more birds for their colony there. And this request came before the Board of Agriculture last week. And it narrowly failed to pass. Uh, it was a 5-4 vote, five votes supporting it, but you needed six votes in order for this importation to be approved. So it's kind of this interesting uh, little situation in a, in a board meeting agenda, but it kind of speaks to some of the broader trends that we're seeing in the shifts, right, in terms of Hawaii tourism and what is expected. Uh, this is a, a board of agriculture board, uh, but this board also has a lot of discretion to weigh in on what they think is appropriate to import or not import into 
Hawaii, uh, even if it's completely safe and legal and by the book. Yeah, but there is uh, the political correctness <laughs> issue sometimes that uh, that pops up. I, you know, you you uh, had a quote in there about a board member who said, you know, what a tourist take home from their visit, and he says, "What did I learn when I was in Hawaii?" Ne? I looked at penguins, which is interesting. Right. <laughs> yeah, I saw a bunch of penguins yeah. in in Hawaii. Uh, you know, and this is not obviously limited to penguins here at the Hyatt Regency. There are at least several key examples that have, that have come up. And there there were also uh, there was a, a colony at the uh, Hilton Hawaiian Village for some years, and I believe they were shipped out those those penguins. Uh, little under a decade ago, uh, but in any case, and you have the dolphins and, and you know the Kahala Resort and and on the Big Island, uh, there are moot swans at the a resort in or meat swans, I should say, in, in uh, Kauai at a resort. Uh, but yeah, it, it really kind of uh, you know brings up these questions about exotic animals and their their role in Hawaii in different places, you know, versus a, a zoo or an animal sanctuary and compare that to like a you know resort and and uh these resorts certainly can't bring in lions and and tigers and bears it's not like the mirage in in las vegas but there is uh you know a range of animals that they would be allowed to bring uh whether that's turtles or reptiles or um even even zebras i think well uh you know yeah. Sorry, uh, no, I, I remember when we had uh, kind of a, a big ruckus because uh, there were some black swans that flew in at, and were hanging out at Ala Moana Beach Park, which just kind of <laughs> surprised everybody. And it turns out that they were traced back to the uh, uh, to Koalina Resort, uh, which had some permits. But then I think when the officials were checking, they said, well, they, you've got far more uh, swans than, than you have permits for. So it just raises a whole host of... of uh, of questions about you know what's the appropriateness of for for these you know wildlife uh, being in right. these resorts, right? And that's one of the reasons they want to bring in these penguins is they need the genetic variation. They want to keep propagating this colony, uh, but they really do have to scrutinize. You know, when you're talking about breeding and and whether there's inadvertent breeding and what do you do in in those kind of situations. Um, I did talk to the plant quarantine branch officials, which are with the Department of Agriculture. And they say, yeah, they, they want to scrutinize, like to, to your example, uh, with the black swans, they want to make sure that these these animals can be safely and, you know, securely uh, secured, I should say, right, uh, in addition to being humanely treated. Yeah, well, it is an interesting issue. And again, you know, the political correctness, uh, things have changed and are changing. Uh, so, yeah, it's probably appropriate that, uh, you know, we kind of pause and think, you know, what are we doing here? Yeah, what is what is the role of, of these types of animals? Indeed. Yeah, it's funny because I was on a neighbor island recently and uh, happened to go to a number of resorts and there were all kinds of birds. And I just wondered about you know what was life like for these resort birds. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for this story, Marcel. Sure thing. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking to reporter Marcel Henre. He has today's reality check. You can read the story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Monkey Pod Kitchen on Oahu in Ko'olina and Maui in Wailea and Ka'anapali. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application at monkeypodkitchen.com slash careers. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It can feel like you just can't get a deep breath sometimes and it can affect more than just your lungs. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the latest on how to live well with COPD. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin Monday, September 19th. More by searching Osher Hawaii.
when our listeners have comments or questions about interviews we air, they oftentimes leave a message on our talkback line or send an email to our uh, talkback inbox. Following our story about the free holo cards and free bus rides to beat the school jam in Honolulu, we got this. This is Esperanza Turner calling from Maui, Hawaii. You know, I'd like to urge people all over the islands to stop driving. Please start using the bus or even walking. You know, people are not walking. It's healthier to walk. Even in the hot, you can walk for a few minutes. The bus system here on Maui is air-conditioned. It's never that crowded. I'm sure in the other islands, you know, someone could take the bus instead of driving. Please stop driving. That is a huge part of the carbon emission problem. Please take heed and just put your car away for maybe one or two days a week. Thank you very much. Aloha, Aloha. And I did just check with the Department of Transportation Services this morning. Uh, they said they're still compiling the numbers on that free week of bus rides, and they hope to have the numbers later this week. But thank you for the feedback. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792-8217. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. What do you take on an intergalactic trip to Mars? Well, astronomer Christopher Phillips tells us what might be on an astronaut's packing list on the next space voyage. Here's your Monday Stargazer. It's HBR, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio and Stargazer time. I'm Dave Lawrence and our usual weekly exploration of things in the universe and things we can look for in our island skies. As we do this, we're really grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. And wouldn't you know, he's right back on the line as usual this week. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for both Jupiter and Saturn in the east as they rise at around 8 p.m. Mars will also rise a little later at around 11.30 p.m. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase, which of course means conditions will be perfect for stargazing through week's end. You mentioned the red planet and often have exciting stories relating to it, and we have a return to Mars. Yes, things are heating up in the race to get back to the moon and Mars, with both SpaceX and NASA constructing vehicles to take humans to the red planet. But what to do when we get there? Resupply missions from Earth will take between six to nine months to reach Mars, and so explorers will have to use local resources in order to survive, the most important of which is obviously water. And this week, a joint NASA and European map of potential water deposits on the Martian surface was released, a map that will define human settlements on Mars for possibly hundreds of years to come. Oh, this is pretty exciting. How did this thing come about? Well, the data was put together from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the European Space Agency's Mars Express Probe, both of which are equipped with high-resolution instruments that are capable of probing the red planet in incredible detail. The map itself took 10 years to complete. And they're, uh, they're looking for not that tasty Italian-American treat from the mid-Atlantic, but the other kind of water ice. <laughs> yep, just plain old water ice. <laughs> and it's no joke because water is pretty important for not just drinking but oxygen and fuel. Indeed, water can be used for drinking and growing crops, but its uses go far beyond that. Water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. You split water into those constituent elements and you have fuel and air. And this kind of uh, replicates, Chris, human settlements on Earth, which a lot of them have been based around water for obvious reasons, and that appears to be what's going to happen on the red planet. Indeed, it's fascinating that even with our technology and all our knowledge, the first human settlers on another world will be mimicking our ancient ancestors by settling near water deposits. The first cities on Mars will no doubt be founded in these locations. Just need a little bit of lemon, some sugar, mix it up real good, have a little water ice up there. <laughs> and you're well away. It's Christopher Phillips and another fun and informative Stargazer report for us. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Maui's Wailuku Civic Complex, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking back to 1939 when the Dole Pineapple Company commissioned two paintings from one of America's most celebrated artists. The artist came to Hana and spent the next three months painting flowers, waterfalls, fish hooks, misty mountains, everything except a pineapple, which, which he was supposed to do. She had wanted to get out in the fields with the workers, and the ad agency wanted a less gritty, more artsy approach. The impasse was broken after she returned to her New York studio, where Dole sent her a pineapple. When she finally got a good look at her subject, she exclaimed, It's beautiful. I never knew that. She summed up her visit to Hawaii in the cryptic prose style popular at the time. If my painting is what I have to give back to the world for what the world gives to me, I may say that these paintings are what I have to give at present for what three months in Hawaii gave to me. And while you ponder that classic example of mid-century art speak, we'll remind you that her name was Georgia O'Keeffe. That was the answer we were looking for. And if this bit of history piqued your interest, you can see several of O'Keeffe's paintings from her time in Hawaii at the Honolulu Museum of Art. And congrats to Lance Kimura from Kaimuki. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. from Hawaii in the film and television industries isn't limited to The Rock and Jason Momoa and others you see on camera. There are multitudes of others working behind the scenes and in stunts like Nito Larioza. The five foot seven veteran stuntman grew up in Wahiwa and got his start in entertainment in the 90s as a member of the local boy band Bad Boys Club that was later rebranded as New Generation. After moving to Los Angeles to pursue a music career, he found his way into the stunt business. Larioza is back on Oahu for work and is also holding a stunt workshop this weekend. He took some time to talk story with the conversations Russell Subiono in our studios. According to the internet, according to IMDb, mm. you have over 150 credits to your career. <laughs> What are some of the most well-known movies that you've worked on? The biggest movie I've worked on was Avatar. That was fun. I worked on Indiana Jones, Transformers, Spider-Man, the new one that just came out, Get Hard, Catwoman. It's been pretty extensive. I mean, 150 cool. credits, yeah. yeah. Movies and television. Yes, I do TV, film, and music videos. Okay. I just did a music video for Doja Cat and uh, Dua Lipa. And I was supposed to work with Weekend. I was supposed to do a music video with Weekend and Post Malone, but I was busy. And I was in Hawaii, man. I was like, man, that would have been so cool. Post Malone was supposed to shoot me. Uh And I was supposed to die. And uh, didn't have it next time. You have a dance background too, right? Yes. When you do music videos, do you end up doing a lot of dance or is it pure stunts? I do both. My first love in this business was dancing. That's how I got into the business. (laughs) I had a record deal at Warner Brothers. And then while we were recording our album for Warner, I was dancing and taking classes. And I just saw the whole dance community in LA. Saw famous dancers that I see on music videos when that Paula Abdu, Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson era. Yeah. When MTV was like huge. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I got connected with some friends through the dance world. And then I was very blessed to do like music videos, tours with like Britney, Backstreet, Madonna. And then all of a sudden, my friends who were doing Power Rangers at that time gave me a call and asked me if I wanted to be in a movie called The Rundown with The Rock. And uh, they were looking for brown guys, kind of like my height. And they knew what I could do. And they're like, yeah, he's looking for guys like you, Nito. I'm like, really? Well, I don't do stunts, you know what I mean? But, you know, I'll take a crack at it. I'll audition. And then the coordinator at the time, the stunt coordinator, was Andy Chang. Andy Chang is a part of Jackie Chan's stunt team. He used to double Jackie. So he was coordinating it and second unit directing. Peter Berg was the director. I sent my stuff and I said, look, I don't do stunts, I'm a dancer. But he saw my video, he loved it. He goes, well, what are you doing now? He goes, I just got off a tour in Madonna. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? He goes, I love Madonna. He hired, Wow. got the job like wow. that. 
Wow. But so, I had to prove myself. Don't get stupid. Right, yeah. right, right, right. It, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's the way the industry is. Yeah, right? so you got to prove yourself. But uh, it was cool and it was painful. Yeah. But uh, it was cool. I liked uh, it. Did you have to go to like training at the outset or did they kind of just tell you this is what we're going to do today? Go for it. A little bit of both. It's hard to explain this because it's such a tight niche. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's kind of one of those things you got to know somebody or you got to be around that, that scene. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. But for me, what made me get into the business was my cousin used to do it, my cousin Sonny. And I used to train the same place all the power rangers would train. Mm-hmm. And I would practice there just doing flips because I'm a gymnast. I would break dance. Mm-hmm. I practice my tricks for auditions and for jobs. And they would train there too. You know what I mean? They'll be like, hey, man, you're good. You should train. I go, nah, guys, I want to dance. That's, that's what I want to do. But then, like I said, you know, because I was in that scene and I knew people, it made it easier for me to make that transition. You know what I mean? You know, I wasn't looking for it. It kind of came to me. And then uh, I stopped dancing. And then I just pursued stunts. But at the end of the day, like we said earlier, I got all these credits. I feel very blessed to do movies that I grew up loving. And uh, I have no regrets. What do you remember from that very first job on the run, though? It was painful. It hurt. Don't do it. That's like spinning Tarzan jiu-jitsu. I think what was interesting about the rundown was we as a team, the stunt players and everybody, come up with choreography for the coordinator and other things for the movie. And we try to see what works, what doesn't. And we shoot a previs. And when we shoot that, we show that to the director, see if he likes it, see what he doesn't like. And then we go from there. But it's like dancing. You make it up, you see if they like it, and then you go on from there. On average, how long does it take to prepare a stunt, to prepare it, do the choreography, and then for the director or producer to sign off on it? I think it depends on the budget. The budget is a big deal, and if it's for film and TV. TV moves fast. I mean, I think sometimes TV has like five days tops or three days, you know what I mean? It just depends on the budget. And uh, for film, like if it's a big budget film, you got like weeks. Yeah. I mean, so you have time to prep it and things like that. So it just depends. Like I just worked on NCIS. They just tell you, okay, we want this and this and that, that's it. And then we do it and then that's it. Cause it's that quick, you know what I mean? But if it's for film and TV and it's a stylized fight or a car crash or something, then they have to prep it, you know what I mean? Set it up, make sure everything's safe, the dimensions, everything, how we want to shoot it. And then once we get that and the producers and the director, okay, give it the green light, then we shoot. Is there a particular stunt that's more fun than the others? In my own little head, I imagine like crashing a car or jumping out of a plane mm. seems like, like a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. I, I think it depends on what's your rush. Yeah. I think everybody's different when it comes to that. You know, mostly I just do fights. I've done a car crash. I've never jumped out of a plane. I think that would be really cool. You know, it just depends. For filming TV, you got tons of takes. I mean, they don't like that, but you have a lot of time to to get it right. Like, oh no, we didn't like that. Can you do it again? Oh, we didn't like that angle, let's shoot it here. So you have a bunch of takes. But if you're a dancer and you are a performer and you gotta do it live, no way. You better kill it that one shot. So to me, that is like the rush. You got this audience, live TV, and you gotta kill it. So to me, that is like the ultimate rush. Doesn't matter what the gag is, it's just, I got all these people screaming, I got that energy. Like, I just performed with Kendrick Lamar a couple years ago mm-hmm. for the VMAs. I was on fire, full burn. And I was doing, like, a sword fight with him. But I was full on fire. Wow. And we rehearsed it, like, three times mm-hmm. before we went on. And my body was super heavy, the clothes, the gel was on me. And I was on fire for one minute. That was intense. And then uh, I had some burns and things like that. My wife was, like, stressing. But at the end of the day, man, that was like an ultimate rush, and I had mad respect yeah. after that. Like yeah. people were like, "That guy is tough." Oh heck yeah, yeah, man! Heck yeah. So, but that's how you get the respect too. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you do something like that. For people who are interested in doing stunts, 
kind of traits or qualities does the ideal person have? Is it a sports background or a dance background like yourself or like a martial arts background? Is there a certain type that tends to do well? I think all of that. You know, I think everybody has a different background that can bring to this table, like people who are race car drivers, Mm. motorcycle racers, horseback riding. You know, stunts is such a big realm. I just do probably like 25% of it because there's cars, there's fire, there's horses, there's aerial. There's all kinds of things that people are very good at. And I think that's the one thing with any career, like stunts, that you got to find your niche. Mm-hmm. And then once you get in there, you can kind of like play around a little bit and kind of like, oh, okay, let me dabble into this, let me dabble that. To me, stunts is like dancing, but more physical. I choreograph all the steps, everything what I do. I mark everything kind of like that. So it's, to me, it's kind of similar. So that's how I look at it. Stunt people are hired to do work that's too dangerous for the actor or for the performer to do, right? Mm-hmm. What about injuries? I know everything carries a certain amount of risk with it. What percentage of the work that you do carries the risk for injury? There's always injuries. Yeah. I think once you get into the stunt business, you know that it's dangerous yeah. and something can happen. But at the end of the day, you always try to prep for it sure everything's great this is what we're going to do from a to b you always try to make sure and then there's a stunt coordinator always on set making sure it's safe you're padded everybody's good you know what i mean so before we even go action we just try to make sure everything is safe in my opinion it's the little things that people take for granted that's when you get hurt the most like the big gags and the, the fire the the car crash Things like that, they prep so much for it that it always comes out okay. Mm-hmm. But the little stuff like he's running here and then he trips and then he hurts himself, mm-hmm. that happens all the time. And that's the risk you take. That's but, the business. But the benefits and the rush outweigh the risk of injury. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> that's where you try to hire the right person yeah. and the right people so there is no injuries. Yeah. You've been in the industry, you've been a stunt person, I think, 30-plus years, or, or nearing 30 no. years. No. Stunts have been it for 20 years. 20, okay. okay. But dancing and the entertainment yeah. industry, I've been in it since I was 16 years old. Oh, okay. So uh, over 30 years. Way, yeah. Way past 30 years, yeah. Yeah. I just showed my age, but I don't care. <laughs> okay. I'm well, Filipino. I still look good. You, you do. Yeah. I, I, was, I was shocked. I read that you were over 50 and when I saw you it was like nah this guy's not oh hell yeah oh yes I am I just don't party I don't drink I don't smoke you know what I mean I take care of my body that's what you gotta do if you wanna do stunts Mm -hmm. at this level you know because that takes a wear and tear on your body and I do yoga I do work out but I don't lift weights Mm -hmm. I just try to maintain my body so that my body's in good shape Tell me about the workshop. I know it's Saturday, September... September 3rd. 3rd. Yes. Okay. And how do people sign up for the workshop? Yes, I'm teaching a stunt workshop in Oahu at Island Elite. It's next to Costco in Honolulu, right next to Best Buy to Costco. And uh, it's from 3.30 to 5.30, September 3rd. I'm teaching a workshop for film and TV. So I'm teaching like reactions, fights, and falls, and things that are important in scenes for actors stunt performers. It's almost full. Oh, okay. So okay. it'll be great if people are interested in the business to sign up. People going to break a sweat in your workshop? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite story of an incredible stunt that you guys put a lot of work into, put a lot of planning into, that you were able to pull off, and it looked incredible on the screen? There's a couple. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple, but it was painful. Transformers was great. We did all the Transformers. We did it all mocap, and we just was getting wrecked, like getting smashed, smashed. Do it again. My body was exhausted. Like, as soon as I got home, I just slept. And then I had to go the next day and do it again and again. But when I saw the final product of Transformers and being the robots, Mm -hmm. man, that was amazing. I just did a show that I stunt coordinated called I Think You Should Leave Tim Robinson. It's a sketch comedy show. And we had a coffin drops. So we had like all my friends naked and they were doing coffin drops on the ground. 
and that was really cool because that was dangerous. What is, what is the coffin drop? Like, you just fall out of the coffin. Oh, okay, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you just bam, and you roll, you flip over people. And I thought that one was interesting because that was a unique stunt. It's not a fight, it's not a car hit, but it involves people carrying you, and you falling down and rolling, and you kind of are blind. Like, you just don't know, you just got to go for it. But I enjoyed that one just because of I was the boss on that. And then The Rundown, my first movie I did with The Rock. That one was with Ernie Reyes, and it was all these little brown guys in the jungle, and we beat the shit out of The Rock. That was awesome. We just kept nailing him, yeah. kicking his butt, his stunt double, everybody. So that was a great, great opportunity. And we got nominated for that, too. Jobs like that, man, I'm always going to remember. And uh, whenever anybody tells me, like, they love that scene, this and this and that, that makes me feel good. That makes me know that I did my job. Like, they loved it. When you go into the movie theaters, they go like, ooh, oh, I love that. Ooh, that was cool. I remember that. That's what makes them special. It makes you feel good inside. Thank you so much, yeah. Nino. I appreciate your time, man. That was good fun. Thanks, man. That was Oahu native and stuntman Nito Lariosa talking with HBR's Russell Subiano about his career as a stuntman. Lariosa says even though he's in his 50s, he's still performing stunts, but he's also spending more time producing films. He has two documentaries about the stunt industry that will be released in the near future. The stunt workshop that he's holding on Oahu will take place this Saturday, September 3rd, near the Costco in Ivalay. We'll have more information on how to sign up on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that is it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about how musicians are gathering for a memorial concert in a nod to Harry B. Sorio and the long-running radio show, Territorial Airwaves. Do you have a story about that show to share with us? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.